tell us a little bit about what you do at JCB and your role, because you are a genuine A grader. We know this. We're going to dig into that a little bit as well. Uh, Trent, I've been in this earth moving construction industry now for the better part of um, 37 years, but who's counting? <laughs> um, and prior to that, I was in sales as well for a period of time before I joined the earth moving um, and construction selling fraternity. Um, but yeah, for the better part of my life, I've been in a sales role. Uh, since I think I was about 22, 23. Um, in terms of where I'm at in the, in, the, in the current position within Construction Equipment Australia, uh, I wear a few hats in the, in the, in the, in the joint. Um, uh, the primary, one of, a couple of the primary roles are on the uh, National Government Business Manager. Um, we can talk about that a bit later on if you wish. Uh, I'm also, and have been for a long, long time, and this is a product that I'm very passionate about and will always be, is I'm the National Product Manager for JCB Backo Loaders. Uh, and backing on to that, in the last two or three years, I've been, I've sort of done a bit of a 360 and I used to be the Product Manager for Compact Equipment, which encompasses mini excavators and skid steel loaders. And um, I've been given that one back to handle as well. Um, and I guess over, overarching all that or, or in, in conjunction with all that trend, uh, I'm, I'm a national sales coach. So I, where I can, uh, will impart uh, my knowledge upon uh, new, uh, new employees, specifically in the, in the, in the sales arena. Um, but that will also apply to our senior managers as well that, that touch on, because all our senior managers, of course, do uh, general managers touch on sales. It's one of the integral parts of their role too. So, you are what an A grade salesperson. You've won a lot of awards. Hey, tell us about this international award that you won, Glenn. So, I remember when I first met you, that was hanging on your LinkedIn profile. Yes, um, it still is, and uh, it'll be something that I'll cherish uh, to the day I basically depart this mortal coil. But Effectively, what it was is that, again, swinging back onto my passion for backhoe loaders, JCB ran a, um, a worldwide competition for all dealers, all JCB dealers in the world were invited to participate. And the, 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 it, was, it was basically to celebrate JCB's 50th anniversary as a company, which was back in 2015. And they brought out a special 50th anniversary uh, version of the loader backo, which was really quite cool because it had retro livery dating back to sort of the seventies. So it had all the seventies livery on it, but was obviously on a on a current on a current model. Anyway, the reality the, the the reality was is that what they wanted to I guess put out to to their dealership base worldwide was um, to I guess put a it was a quest to find out who the I guess the best backhoe loader salesman was for JCB in the world. And uh, long story short, but yeah, I, I, I got the gig. So at the end of the day, I won that little accolade. You can't see it behind me, but it's the, the, the plaque sitting behind me at the moment on my on my shelf. That was a pretty amazing time, a pretty amazing time in, in my sales career, yeah. Outstanding. There's always a number one, Glenn. There's always a number one in a team. There's always a number one in an industry. And how big is that industry? Who knows? Depending on, depending on what you're selling. But what makes you an A-grade salesperson? 
I want to sort of dig into that. Digging is a good reference, actually. Um, we yeah. want to dig into that. Uh, what makes you an A-grade salesperson? Because product knowledge is typically uh, one part of that. Although there are different schools of thought with different people that say product knowledge is not that important. It's not the most important thing, but um, I think it's bloody important, uh, depending on the product, obviously, and the, what you're selling. But what, what are the characteristics that you've identified with that make you sort of an A-grade operator? Yeah, well, there's a, there's, in my opinion, there's a, there's a few key elements to, to, to I guess, crack the A-grade salesperson to use the, to, to use the terminology or the top of the tree or, you know, in, in, in terms of the sales field, but, or, or certainly participate at the, at the top end of town. I mean, obviously, everyone has levels. You know, there needs to be an understanding about that too. I mean, everyone has levels that they, they can attain. Um, some people will never make sales for a variety of different reasons, but you know certainly you know you touched on product knowledge. Um, yes, in terms of our industry, that is fundamentally very very important because mm. you know, the machines are intricate. Um, they do they do you know people might see a, a digger digging a hole when and, you know on on the road when they drive past and not think a great deal about it. But the operator in that environment. Um, that, you know, in terms of the skill set that they have, and then to assimilate that skill set with the product, uh, is an art form, and a lot of people don't understand that just how technical um, it is to jump in an excavator or a backhoe or whatever the case may be, and 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 complete the task that has to be done. It's all based to plan. It's all done on plans and planning. You can't just jump off the street and operate an earth moving machine. So for on that premise. You know what I what I impress upon our sales team is that you really need to understand what makes the product tick. You know, I mean, you don't have to be, nor would you be expected to be, the world's best operator or an operator per se. But what you need to be able to do is to impart the product in terms of you know what what this does and how it works and why it works um, to the potential customer. And, and and understand you know understand the subliminal aspects of that when you're selling the machine. Understand where that machine would suit that customer. Why 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 you believe that product is a good fit for that customer or that that company. And it, and once you've identified that, then then obviously then um, put forward your salient sales um, advantages, particularly particularly. And this is one thing that I always do is know who your competition is, because the reality is in sales is that if you don't understand who you're competing against, well, you could be you could basically be turning left at the crossroads and you should be turning right, because at, at the end of the day, it's integral, in my opinion, in a sales presentation to understand the customer's needs and wants, where they believe this product's going to fit in their business what products are they currently run? That is to say, are they friendly fire or are we, are we actually trying to do a conquest sale? Understand all the elements to that. And once you get, and, and again, as I say to the people that I mentor and coach is that if you want to be a good salesperson, I think, you know what I think Trent makes a good salesperson? I think a good salesperson should equally, equally be able to join the police force and be their best detective, if that makes sense. Because, you know, if if you 
I, I do a little presentation in terms of selling to local government. And when I, I get to a particular slide, and and it's all about understanding the questions that need to be to, to be asked. And my my fundamental three questions are when whether it's a government whether it's a government entity or whether it's a private entity. There's three things you see you need to know in 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 the in the right at the formation of the process. Firstly you understand who is looking to purchase. That is to say, you've gone out, you've trawled the market, you've fished, you know, you put the rod out there, you see who's biting. So you need to understand initially who it is that is looking to purchase your product, potentially, either tomorrow or next month or next year, and then you'll set a strategy accordingly to that. Once you've established that first parameter, then you look for the second parameter. The second parameter is what product are they actually looking for? So, you know, if you can understand who it is that you're approaching, when they're looking to purchase it, and what they are potentially looking to purchase, that's fantastic. And the third and final and integral and very important part of the process is, when do they intend to purchase it? So there's the three elements. Who is looking to purchase? What are they looking for? And when do they intend to purchase it? And once, once you're in possession of those three facts, you know what happens, Trent? It goes boom! Right, Jesus, look out! You love it, okay? Because at the end of the day, once you've got that knowledge, you can then set a strategy in terms of call timelines. You know, promoting the product at a certain time in in the process, knowing who the stakeholders are, knowing who's integral to the purchasing decision. If it's a mum and dad show, you know, is it is it is it something where you need to sit around the dinner table or, you know? Catch up with 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 the with the with the with the couple if they're both integral to the decision, or if it's a top corporate company. Understand who it is within that organisation that ultimately will sign off on that decision. Okay, so and, and it might be, and particularly in the case of local government, it might be a variety of stakeholders. Everybody from the operator to a works foreman to a workshop supervisor to a fleet manager to a councillor, to a fleet director. And if you haven't, if you haven't, if you don't have the knowledge of who it is within that organisation, as I say, whether it's a mum and dad show or whether it's a multi-million dollar corporation, if you don't have that knowledge, and again, coming back to when they're, who, who it is that are purchasing, what they are looking for and when they intend to purchase it, if you don't have that, well, ultimately, you're going to fail because you, you you're just going to run around in circles. So, my my key take out of out of you know, I guess being an A grade salesperson is cue the Miami Vice music, put on the pastel suit and the white shoes, and go out and go and get them. Okay, because you 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 need to yeah. And then my stat, I do cue the Miami Vice music, and I yes. put on put on the cop badge, and I put on I put on the eighties week, and away we go because. As I say, a good salesperson should make a good detective. Yeah, you're showing your age there, Glenn. Love it. Okay, get on the scarab, get in the scarab, and just arrive in style in the, uh, in, the, the in the in the lime suit. Uh, that's the one. That's so. Just take it back a little bit. Now, the product knowledge really important, I think, in all industries. Some some will question that and think it's more about people skills and everything else, but they're both very very important, I think. You're talking about navigating and understanding um, stake, stakeholder navigation, really important. But this, um, this link to knowing when they're purchasing. So we might want to just dig in here to the local government strategy because this is 
such a baffling, mysterious market for so many organisations. We're talking about tenders in general, baffling to uh, most organisations. Uh, I have a couple of clients that have really worked out um, how to crack the tender code. So their conversions are in the vicinity of 60 plus percent, uh, where the vast majority seem to be under 10, you know, because mm. it is a really often a closed process. Um, the client is or procurement is in complete control and the, um, the suppliers submitting information, copious amounts of information, and they don't have any levers at all. Um, so they won't even let you know who's bidding, who else is bidding. So that bit about competitor intelligence is missing as well. So you've got a, this blind process that a lot of companies sort of are forced to go through um, reluctantly because there's a channel there, there's a potential opportunity there, but the client is in complete control with the tenders. So that's a little bit long-winded. So you seem to have cracked it. JCB has seemed to have cracked it. What, do you, what, is the, what are you doing differently? when it comes to local government, winning local government contracts? Well, in terms, it's, it, there's a unique core group of methodologies that we utilise or I certainly put forward in terms of dealing with local government. Um, local government, yes, again, you come, I come back to, the, to, to the, three, the three questions. Who's looking to purchase? What are they looking for? And when do they intend to purchase it? So those three questions... Uh, can can certainly be posed to local government in the correct format. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people, I find are, are scared. Like they're scared to actually when they come up to a, a local government depot or a, a government building or whatever, they they basically see a building that's got razor wire all over it, and don't really know where to either break through the fence or what door to knock on. And what I find with a lot of people that fail in local government selling is that they're, they're too scared to go in and actually go in and ask the questions. And the reason they're scared to do it is they don't know where to look, okay? So realistically, you need to understand what, what door you need to knock on. And it can be as simple as this, is that, you know, you, you, you've done some homework and research. You know that they're looking for a new backhoe loader. Okay, so again, ask some questions, put the detective badge on and find out who is actually going to be the recipient of that new machine within the council. That is to say, who's, who's the operator that's getting the brand new shiny backhoe loader or whatever it is and seek them out. Um, find out what job site they're on on the side of the road. And I've done this many times and knock on the cab door when it's safe to do so, of course, and make sure you have your, uh, high, your high vis on, of course, Glenn. If you would have your high vis on and you'd have, <laughs> you, you, would, you, you, would, you would hopefully have got permission from somebody on the job site to do what you're going to do. I mean, the, yeah, yeah. In the good old days, Trent, when I, when I was selling backhoe loaders in the late 80s and 90s, I used to ride on the mudguard and actually sell and get the order while I was riding around while I was digging holes. Um, if I did that now, I'd be thrown in jail, of course. Mm. Um, but... There is, there is, there is a means to, there is always a means to get into the stakeholder, and a lot of people are, are mystified by that and don't understand what they need to do. And 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 look, the the thing with the key to being an excellent government salesperson is, I, I call it, I call it the three P's, right? The three P's, and that is 
persistence. You've got to be exceptionally persistent because you're dealing with bureaucracy here. Okay. You've got to have perseverance. You need to be, you need to be able to be perseverant and you need to be able to push through. And above all, and this is the, this is the key with selling a local government trend above everything is you have to be exceptionally patient. Okay. Because if, if you, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't have those traits, government selling becomes too hard. And I've seen this and I know some of our competitors that find it too difficult. So what I impress upon our salespeople is that when they're, they're given the, the keys to a territory, uh, the first thing I say to them, aside from obviously go and look for some known prospects that we can potentially give you or whatever, find out what local governments, how many local government entities are in the area of your responsibility then do research. You must research and find out which of those entities are looking to purchase, what they're looking for, and when they intend to purchase it. Once you've locked that in, then you can start, again, put the detective hat on, find out who all the stakeholders are in that particular organisation, in a council. And as I say, usually it's more than a half a dozen people. It's, it's not one. And again, this is a trap that people fall into. They think that just going to see the fleet manager or fleet director is going to get the sale. But at the end of the day, what we're finding these days is, is that there's a panel, there's a collaborative panel of people uh, that either operate it, work on it, supervise it, purchase it, hire it internally. There's a group of people that, that are in that that stakehold process of, of purchasing an earth-moving piece of equipment or any equipment for, for local government. And they all then will collaborate. They'll do an analysis, and that analysis is initially, as you say, a tender will be submitted, okay? Uh, but before you submit the tender, what you need to do, if you, if you and this is again, if, if, we, if you submit a tender to local government, and the, and, the, and the first thing you knew about that particular entity in that local government was they're going to purchase a piece of kit was the first. If, you, if your first knowledge of, of that particular council is that there's a tender advertised for a, a, a backhoe loader or an excavator yes. or yes. a great. Whatever, or, whatever, yeah. Whatever the case may be. If that's your first touch point in terms of um, uh, understanding what that council purchasing methodologies are throw the tender in the bin basically because it's too late it's too late you know at the end of the day with councils you need to get on the ground floor before they've even actually budgeted for what they're they're potentially looking for so you need to get in there you need to understand again those three points that i mentioned earlier okay understand those points have a strategy in place do your research find out who the stakeholders are and then what you do is that you put forward what I call a DA. So if you put your DA through and what's a DA? DA is differential advantage. So you need to get out there, and this doesn't just apply to government, this applies to anything in terms of sales. You need to get your differential advantage in front of the customer as early as you possibly can so that they see where your product is potentially a game changer or particularly um, stands out against either a product they own or they're considering it as well. So you get that point of difference out there, that differential advantage and match it to their needs and wants. Um, that's, that's, that's one of the real keys to actually getting your message out there to local government.
that DA or point of difference uh, unique selling proposition, is that also linked to the brand? Because JCB has a very strong brand and reputation. So do they ultimately, you know, you've got to know your product, you've mentioned that inside out, but the brand itself is really strong. Um, so it's really interesting. So I want to just snap that off a little bit because there's, there's a, seems to be a large, you're saying there's a really long runway because this is relationship-based selling and you're almost activating an investor mindset. So you're not looking for the quick wins. You're saying if you get access to a tender that's the, and that's the, your first interaction with that local government, um, uh, entity, it's too late. You've already lost. So you have to be cultivating those relationships in advance. You know, and that could take that could take months. It could take years, Glenn. And, and it does. You know, it, it does. It does take. It, it generally does take years. Um, look, you can jag them, and we. I have. We have jagged them where we have got a tender. The salesperson didn't know about it, and we had to basically bundle up all that strategy, that months and years of strategy, and bundle it up into a very short period of time. But the problem, the problem you have there is, is that once the starter's gun's been fired by a particular entity for a tender for a particular piece of plant, once the starter's gun's fired, then, of course, everybody that sells that particular product or competes in that, in that sphere, they're all in. looking for, they're all in. So yeah. what, is, what, what, what happens then? then there's all this white noise. You've got mm. all this white noise that is floating around. Everyone's trying to scramble. Everyone's trying to become the stakeholder's best friend and get them to trust them and understand their product, et cetera. I love them. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, they're all doing that. So the problem with that is there's, there's a very limited timeline now. You know, you're on, they're, on a, they're on a short rope. So that sounds like work know, too, Glenn. There's a lot of work involved if you're getting all these all these providers to, and suppliers to submit documentation. There is a lot of work to it. There a lot is, of work on on the client side. So, question is, how do you how do you make it easy for them? So you're saying you've got to get in early, build the relationship, and get on the runway. Uh, hmm. That's one way. Build the relationship, build the trust. Because I'm convinced a lot of these people don't want to do the work either on that client side. No. So how do you make the decision really easy? Make it easy to buy, you know, and make it relatively pain-free on their side, um, which so, is why then once you have the client, you can potentially activate lifetime value because once that trust is built, and I'm also convinced a lot of the time they're buying the brand anyway. Like it's all, sometimes it's just the salesperson's job to stuff it up because they want that brand, they want that product. So uh, there's yeah, two elements to here, but I, I like the link that you're saying with the, you know, it is government is, if you're selling to government, it is a slow burn. It's not a quick win mentality. So that you mentioned patience already. There's a patience, but there's also a strategy to that patience. Exactly. So, you know, it, 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 to use your terminology, yes, it is a slow burn, but it's it can be exceptionally rewarding because what you, what, what can tend to happen in local government or government purchasing is that they don't necessarily buy in, in, in singular units. They can they can go out and replace, you know, a multiple amount of mm. units in over one tender. So the reward for the company in that, in that instance, mm. is, of course, is that from a, a revenue and a profit perspective is, is potentially excellent. Um, and once you then have that brand within that government entity 
and obviously, you know, the support that goes along with it once the product's in there and doing what it's supposed to do and providing you can maintain that relationship. There's a very strong chance come next tender time, um, which, of course, you'll know when that's coming, of course, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. Um, ne- next next tender time that you're going to be right in the box seat. But to get yourself, mm. to just to wind back to your initial comment. Right in the bucket plan. Yeah, to get yourself, <laughs> correct, to get yourself in that box seat is that you need to get all those points forward effectively before the gun's been fired. So to make it easy for them to go out and purchase your product, if you've got put your def- differential advantage forward, and they're about to write a specification for a product, and you've got the trust. You, you know they trust you. They understand your product. Uh, may not have even necessarily have seen it, but you've put enough um, salient features through. It only needs to be half a dozen features, if that. Um, in terms of your key product attributes, then what you would like to happen and does happen if you play your cards very smartly is that they will write the specification subliminally around your product. I've heard this a lot with successful uh, organisations that have seemingly cracked the code is that a lot of the tenors would be written specifically for them, you know, because they they have a place in shaping the tender. So I think that seems to be the common consistent theme with uh, companies that seem to have got this right. It is. It is. I mean, look, you can you can overlay that back into the private into the private sector as well. But um, with government, it, it does. The, the the difference between the private sector and government sector is once the gun's been fired on a tender, they then tend to go to ground um, in terms of some of some of them by their own uh, rules and regulations can't say or do a great deal, and and they've got to go through a process in the private sector. Generally speaking, they don't really care too much about that. Um, they're not. They're not. They're not um, defined by protocols. Yeah, um, less compliance. Terms, yeah, less. You know, there's no. You know, government have a structure. They have protocols. They have. You know, all sorts of things in place. So, you know, once the, as I say, once once the tender has been released and the gun's gone, your your window of opportunity. <clears throat> excuse me. Is very. Is very. <clears throat> excuse me. Is very very small. So. If you do and follow those structured steps along the way, is that um, when the gun has been fired, you can be very confident that you're going to be right in the box seat. And if you've put all your if you've put all your salient um, sales features forward, and they trust you, they understand the brand, they understand the the company that's representing the brand, they understand you. Well, effectively. The way that government tendering processes now through through local government through each state now is pretty much structured is that there's a statutory body now, um, which is, um, for argument's sake, in Queensland to use the example where where I live is there, there's a, a government entity called Local Buy, which is um, a, a, a subsidiary of the Local Government Association of Queensland (LGAQ). Now every every state has a similar Purchasing or procurement body under their peak under their peak body. So, mm-hmm. uh, for argument's sake, in Western Australia, the acronym is WALGA, which is West Australian Local Government Association. In New South Wales, it's LGP Local Government Procurement, and so I go. So, what can, what happens then is they they set up vendor panels. There's a vendor panel that is contracted out. Generally, it's a five year vendor panel, and they put out a contract 
and all the terms and the commercial aspects of that tender process then, all the auspices and all the commercialities and all the rest of it are then in that vendor panel. So they don't then have to go out to public tender. They then go out through a the private panel. tender process mm -hmm. on the panel. And if you and if you and if you've done the correct thing in terms of the steps, you know, which could be months or years leading up to that particular process, they then have the opportunity to selectively call in who they want to tender. So they don't have to go out to every vendor panel. They don't have to go to every panelist. Okay. If you've got your message out there and we've had it, I've had this it. Sounds, this sounds very corrupt, Glenn. It's not corrupt. It's it's perfectly legitimate. <laughs> not corruptible. It's, it, it was, no, it's not corruptible. No, it's perfectly no, legitimate. Of course not. Of course not. And, and 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 you can effectively through and they can do this through the through the uh, through the contract uh, through the contract. They can they can ostensibly they can actually call one supplier in if they want to. If oh, they, look out! Yeah, and we've had no. that happen. Okay. We've had that yes. happen, and, and of course they'll, they'll obviously put to you, please don't take this um, as, a, as an opportunity to uh, extort us in terms of your price, but mm. you know, be fair. Generally speaking, what they will do is they'll go out to the top three or four, okay? Mm. And they'll call those panellists in based on the premise of the information that's been, that they've derived or been given by those particular um, company providers or those product providers, and they'll then shortlist that. So to getting back to your point, making it easier for the procurement process for them, if they're in control and they understand the products that are out there and how that will benefit their organisation, then they can selectively call that particular brand and or product to the table. Gotcha. So that vendor panel uh, is a big part of your sales process as a one it's channel, a, and then you're also going direct to local governments as well. So you, you're sort of not circumventing that, but you're going directly to the local government. And just for those listening that... Um, don't understand this market, local government, it's really local councils, isn't it? Because um, I believe 550 local councils nationally. Glenn, is that correct or thereabouts? Local uh, government? Pretty close. 564, yeah. I think it is. Gotcha. Yes. So there's two channels there, the vendor panels and they're all, all direct, direct to the council itself. You, you will sell, you, the process, the, the lead up to the process to where the request for quota or RFQ or tender is called, is a direct liaison with that 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 local council, local government entity. So gotcha. um, the vendor the vendor panel process is is purely a commercial process to make it easier for the purchaser and the vendor to do business. The ability to navigate relationships are they equally important, or is there a bit of a weighting between the two in terms of importance? Because the brand itself, the features, the product, the reliability of the tools, the, the the machinery, the equipment, very important, I would say, in terms of building trust and reputation. But then the navigating relationships here, getting to the right person within those local governments. Well, the the fact is, you can't have one without the other. To be honest, so you 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 can't you can't just be brand specific, um, and not have that relationship or that understanding of where that brand is perceived by the potential stakeholders within that within that organization so um, you you need yes you need the relationships with the stakeholders to understand what the brand is and what the brand can offer them um, but as I say you can't have one without the other
In most markets, Glenn, the product itself, if you're really honest, it doesn't differ based on the competition. Like the, the product's very similar across the board. There's not companies or uh, products that are hugely um, distinct or innovative. You know, what's the translation? Most salespeople pretty much selling the same thing, but working for different brands or organizations. So would you agree with that? Or do you think you guys have something that's very, very different to your competition? Am I, am I allowed to swear at you? Yeah, absolutely. Let it rip. <laughs> You're kidding me. I mean, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you know, and this is, you know, we talk about passion. This is, this is, this is where you'll strike my, my passion chord is, is that, of course, our product is better than others. Um, of course, products. You have to um, believe that, but is it a reality? It totally is. Of course okay. it is. Okay. Yep. Of course it is. I mean, at the end of the day, there, there is, there is different, there's, there's differences. And then in some instances, yes, they can be a little bit subliminal and a bit hard to identify, but in a number of instances, particularly with earth moving and construction equipment, the, the, you know, the industry that we're in, you know, there are some fundamental differences between the competitive products in terms of a, the performance of the product or B, the, the, to, to operator ergonom ergonomics for argument's sake and you know, how, how, how user-friendly is the product to the operator and ultimately what you want out of, a, out of the operator in tandem with the machine is you want enhanced productivity. And enhanced mm. productivity is measured in a number of ways in Earthman. It could be how many metres per hour is moved or how many how many, uh, how many metres of trench are dug per hour or there's all sorts of different parameters that are measured within, the, within our industry. So, you know, if one product demonstrably can prove that it's better or you can prove that your product is better in certain areas of, of, of either performance, ergonomics, um, all sorts of different parameters that you, you, can, you can apply to, to our industry, well, absolutely, you know, I mean, no, the, 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 and this is, this is the point that I make for having sake with JCB backhoes. We have the best backhoe in the world. And I, you know, <laughs> we do. And we, have the, and, we, and we have the number one selling backhoe in the world. So, again, you can't, have, you, you, can't have one with it. you can't have one without the other trend. Uh, uh, if, you've got, if you've got the best product, well, of course you're going to be number one. Of course you're going to be. Oh, absolutely, you know? number one. No, look, I love that, and that's because, you know, you've got to have – absolutely sell something you're passionate about look and to be fair the best leaders the best salespeople have a healthy sense of delusion when it comes to what they sell sometimes as well because they're obsessed with it you know um, i think that's a really powerful place to come from but um yeah and there's the belief isn't it the belief sort of leaps off you onto your onto your clients you have that genuine belief and you can back it up with data and facts i think it's super super compelling because it Again, you can tell very, very quickly whether someone has a deep belief in what they're selling or not. Um, so it's a good answer, Glenn. I'm glad to hear it. I'm not, I don't necessarily 100% buy it, though, but I would say uh, it, it's a world-class product. So the belief's there. You know? Well, if, 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 like, if, you don't buy it, if you don't buy it, Trent, I haven't done my job, so you need to tell me why you don't buy it. I'll buy three, thanks. Can, when, when can I have them here? <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, it's look, it's all about the brand and the product and what revolves around it, isn't it? Belief. Really? So, oh, absolutely, it's belief you in know, the product, belief in what you're selling, belief in, um, in you mentioned a few things, but belief in the product itself, how it 
how it uh, adds value to the customer, you know, that's essentially what you're selling. You know, so well, can you, you, um, if you if you if you consider consider this right, consider the the brand or the product or the service is a bit like the sun. Okay, so everything revolves around that. Okay, so that the passion, the belief, and all the elements that revolve around that product and or service stand out because they're all in a link. So the product and the brand becomes, if you like, the central planet, the central sun, and mm -hmm. all those other elements revolve around it in harmony. Okay, and if you don't have, if you don't have the right, you know, if 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 one's not revolving around at the right speed, or one isn't simply there, or or not. Well then, there is no you know there is no belief, there is no passion, and no passion equals no sale. Simple. Absolutely, and that's that. Uh, product knowledge is a big part of that too, Glenn. Like the amount of salespeople, not not uh, referring to your organisation, but the amount of salespeople that uh, agree that I meet with could improve their product knowledge. You know, the product knowledge is lacking. The organisation knows it, the leader knows it, even the salespeople know it. Yeah, I need to know. I should know more about my product. Well, why don't you? Because that, again, if, you, if that deep passion comes from knowing your product deeply, usually it certainly um, it, it certainly does. In, in our industry, it, 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 it's paramount. It's one of the it's one of the driving factors. And you know, my 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 goal uh, before I decide to hang up my my JCB boots, whenever that may well be, my goal is to be able to have somebody. That you know, if I if I'm you know hit by a bus or I can't make a demonstration for a particular you know very important one, is that I can have or select certain people that I am absolutely one thousand percent confident in that they have the product knowledge to go out there and promote the and 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 sell the product as good as me, or better, Glenn, or better, or better. Yeah, no, I'm happy for it to be better because if they're all as good or better than me. Then I can just kick back and sip beers or pina coladas in the corner and just take the commission checks. That's great. Don't you think that's a really important trait as a leader to just have the ability to find and bring in great people? You're sort of a sales leader, sales person, and coach all rolled into one, Glenn. So you're juggling a few balls. Yeah, I do, and 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 still thoroughly thoroughly enjoy it and love it. To be honest with you, Trent. And um, when I stop feeling that way, I guess um, that's when I'll call I'll call it a day in terms of the industry. So, you know, the, the, getting back to your point about you know, and, and the reality is, and particularly you know, with myself, you know, and I, I don't mind saying I, I turned I turned sixty last year. Um, you know, I don't feel like I want to retire. I don't want to retire. I don't want to get out of business. I still love the business. I'm still passionate about the product. But I might wake up in a few years' time and say, you know what? Um, I don't really feel that way anymore. And But I, I want to get it to that point that if I get to that point in my career or, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm about to say, you know, that's it. I, I want to be confident, particularly in our organisation. We want to be confident. As, as, as senior managers within our, that we have a succession plan in place and that we have salespeople in particular that we can bring through and, and be confident of that, that when we either can't make it or don't want to make it to that sales process, that we've got the appropriate people in place that can. So, Glenn, just on that, so this, uh, I'm, if I'm really, people who listen to me know that I love my sport passion when it comes to mm -hmm. sport but um 
this list managing and knowing where you are, like as a team, do we know, like if you look at an elite sporting team, you know, what, what are their goals? And that can be very depending on their capabilities. So our goals might be to make finals, non-negotiable, must make finals. You know, we know that we might, or as an example, we might know as a team, we're not capable really of making finals. So what's our purpose this year? Bringing the kids through. Or we might be rebuilding. So we have to keep a, really change our strategy. And, you know, again, our goals change depending on our capabilities. Um, but if we've got an aging list, okay, then we've got to get on the front foot. Because again, we've got to start thinking about recruitment. There's a, there's a, a new cycle coming through. Um, but I do see some organizations have got a very aging list when it comes to salespeople and no succession planning. So no young talent coming through, you know, but again, the salespeople being in the business sometimes 20, 30 years. So there, you might disagree with me on this, Glenn, but as a salesperson, if you've been in a role 20 or 30 years, you should be an absolute black, fifth damn black belt master. The challenge for that person is often energy and complacency because they've almost earned the right to cruise. You say, you, okay, you've been in the business 20 years, you've been brought in a lot of business, hundreds of millions of revenue. Um, you've probably earned a significant right to sort of, you know, not be working 18 hour days anymore. But that's a trap sometimes because that breeds complacency. And then as you're aging as well, Glenn, you'd know this as well as I do, the energy, your energy changes. You know, your energy at 25 is very different to 60, I would have thought. Um, so yeah, the, the older, more senior salespeople have got a different set of challenges, I think, but if there's too many of those, if you've got an older list in your organization, and when I say list, the average age of the salesperson is sort of 50 plus, then you have a very different set of challenges. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, uh, yes, I, 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 I concur with you in terms of, um, energy levels in terms of, you know, when you were 25 or 20, as opposed to, you know, 50, 60 or whatever, um, there can be, there can be um, obviously in a, in a physical sense. Um, yes, differences. testosterone. That drops. Poor, I know that for a fact. Poor, poor. There's a lot of elements to it, Trent. Really, but yeah, that could yeah, be one of them. This, this, but, oh, mate, that's that, a major one. Major. Yeah, but yep. what what should never vary? What should never vary? It doesn't matter how old you are, right? Is the intensity of passion, Ooh. because at the at the end of the day. You, 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 the intensity of passion. If you're, if you're as passionate at 65 in terms of what you do, the product you sell and what you put forward as you were when you first entered the sales field when you were 20-something or whatever, if you're still just as passionate about that, don't you think that hides the physical energy capability? Glenn, can I answer that directly? I have goosebumps. Yes. You give me a little bit of a goose tingle here. If there's a, such a thing, a goose tingle. I've got that to me is the good stuff. You know, so that is, I 100% agree with that. You know, that is something that um, is a real gift. If you can find something and dedicate your life to that, something you are genuinely passionate about, the energy changes, you know, are subtle, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it does. And I mean, you know, in my, in my role, and, and, and unfortunately, a lot of companies at the moment, a lot of companies, uh, and, and I guess rightly so, are folks, 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 uh, fixated, I will use the term, on revenue and profit. That's mm. cool, revenue and profit. But you know what, re what generates that revenue and pro profit? Market share. 
market share is what re generates that revenue. And a lot of companies, and I think this happened over COVID, but a lot of people lost sight of market share because at the end of the day, your market share is what drives your company's growth and your profit, okay? So how do you get market share? You have to sell more. How do you sell more? You have more passionate people selling. So, yeah, they're all intertwined. And I, and I, and I, and I over the years, I, I'm, I'm a little bit, I wouldn't call the word despondent, but market share seems to now have become a little bit of a, uh, a, side, a side show to, you know, corporate reporting and profits. And, and that's terrific. But my, my, and this is where I'm very passionate about it, and I, and I look at the statistics every month when they're, when they're, when they're issued without question, is I look at the market share of the products that I am involved in and you know what? It really pisses me off when we lose market share. And mm. when when we lose market share, I want to know, I want to know why, and I want to know where, because there needs to be a very quick determination as to what the issue is. Now, is it the issue with the salesperson? Is it an issue with the product? Well, if it's a product, there'd be a trend across the country. Generally speaking, you lose market share um, in pockets, and you know you then need to establish pretty soon, you know, whether it's the actual sales person or that team in that particular area or something something else that, you know, is, yes. not, is not immediately evident. So, you know, um, even at my age, if, you know, and, I, and a particularly back loader market share, for which we've been market leaders now for 20 years in a row, um, if, I, if I get a sniff that we're losing market share, um, and as I have done very recently with our company, um, put out bulletins to all and sundry in terms of a particular month's performance, which absolutely just, as I say, pissed me off. Um, you know, I, I will I will put on the fire suit and I'll put the lights and sirens on and I will drive to the fire because mm -hmm. we need to get to the bottom of it straight away. <laughs> drive to the fire, passion flame. Well, mm. That's really it. strikes me as you're very competitive as well when you're losing market share that annoys you because the competitive spirit comes out and they great salesperson. They're ultimately very competitive. They hate losing. And I love that at all competitors. They've got that competitive spirit. The, I do agree with you though. Like how do we find passionate salespeople and bring them in? Talent identify passionate people uh, because ultimately they're the ones that we want engaging our stakeholders, engaging our customers. Um, but passion, passionate salespeople, they're getting harder and harder to find, Glenn. They're getting I, I, harder and harder to find. They are out there, but we have to work harder to find them and we've got to work harder to keep them, which means creating environments and culture that allows those passionate salespeople to thrive. That can be a big challenge because a lot of companies want passionate salespeople, but have a look at the culture and leadership. It's missing. It's lacking a lot of elements that would attract those types of people. And understanding what, motivated, what motivates those types of people is really important. But I was keen to know what motivates you why are you so passionate about the product? Because the passion shines through, clearly shines through, and you've been doing what you've been doing at a high level for a very long time. So why are you so passionate? Well, again, it's I'm passionate about the products that we represent um, on the on the premise that we're number one, and we want to we want to retain or keep number one retained indefinitely. So in order to do that, you need to, you know, amongst other things, no product and do this and do all the strategies that we've spoken about the last 
little bit, but you need to be passionate about that product and where it stands in the marketplace. If you, if you, if you're not of any, if you have no interest or there's a disinterest about um, the fact that you've just sold a product into the marketplace that could potentially make or break your particular area as the number one, number two, or number three. If you have no interest in that, if you have no interest in that, you're in the wrong business. Okay, you're so you're passionate about performance, Glenn. You're passionate about winning. But what is passion to you? Like, what, How would you define passion? I'm always interested to sort of dig into this. It's it's how, it, I guess it's how you, how you, demonstrate that attribute to your peers and people that you're potentially giving a learning to in terms of relationship selling and salespeople per sell. But it's it's how in which you look, uh, it's how in which you present. Um, it's, it's uh, I, mean, I call it charisma. You could call it charisma if you want. Do you have, I guess, do you have that, the, the passion factor about you does it does it sort of yeah, surround yes. you you know yeah. is it like an is it like an aura you know do you do, you, do you, can can you I like it can I you, like the aura it's a halo yeah. the glow there is do you have the passion glow? and you can yeah and you can you know you, you you might have and I think I've got some special vision I can I can talk to various salespeople and I can see that aura if there's one um, mm. and if you see and, and and identify that aura. And you don't see it on the person that's. If you don't see it on the person that's standing next to them, who yep. do you think you're gonna? Who do you think you're gonna tether your rope to and bring along for the journey? Fucking love it! I love it. I I will just sniff them. We do the we do the sniff and the warm up and the training is quite funny. You can smell the passion. Yep. You can actually smell it. But you're saying there's an aura as well. So we've got two two sort of sensual um, <laughs> triggers: the smell and the aura. Uh, I actually think that's a really, really cool uh, way of defining it. The aura. Have you got the passion aura? Because you certainly know when you meet somebody who's passionless. And that's the thing. If you're tired and burnt out and, you know, you, you're, um, you're not really clear on your sales process, you're not getting the wins, uh, Glenn, that aura can diminish somewhat sometimes. You know what I mean? Because as winners and competitors, we love to win. But when some things, uh, forces are working against us sometimes, uh, or there's things going on in our personal life, or others, other other aspects to our life, and sometimes that energy can really be um, be taken from us or reduce it, where energy levels reduce accordingly. So um, it's hard to stay at your top of your game for years and years and years, and it's hard to be passionate and have that aura and that stink every day, five days a week, you know, forty eight weeks a year. But the uh, the better ones seem to find a way to do it more more consistently, which is really interesting because. You know, I can go into a sales team one year maybe and there's a leaderboard. And then I go in the next year, there's a leaderboard again. A few people are missing, but the number one from the previous year is now in the middle of the pack. So that person, that number one hasn't lost their ability to sell or their product knowledge. They've generally lost some sort of motivation or energy level, hmm. uh, which is interesting. So maintaining that energy over a longer burn uh, is far more challenging, uh, I think, but certainly helps when you're winning more, Glenn. Well, exactly. I mean, if you you know you want to use the sport analogy, of course, if you just won the last game, um, you're pretty confident the next game you're going to play, um, you're going to have you're going to have a fairly good chance, particularly of winning the next one as well. Um, but you know, again, there Momentum. can be yeah, there can be, but then 
don't be overconfident because the team you're playing for the next one is is different to the one you just played. So yes, that yes. is to say, go back, go back to the fundamentals, understand the team that you're up against next time, understand what makes them tick. If and in the case of a product, makes their 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 product tick and or organisation, and be ready for when the siren fires for the next game that you may very well have changed the the configuration of the playing field and how you're going to play the ball. Totally agree. There's a obviously sometimes we overuse the sporting analogies, but you don't sometimes you don't learn that the lessons are learned through losing. You know, there's more to learn from losing than there is from winning. But I do think good operators know how to win because there's they've worked it out. They know how to win. In tight moments and you know the pressure's on or whatever, they've they've worked out a way to win. Whereas, but the losing aspect is really interesting as well because if you're going to lose, you may as well lose really well. You know, push your competitors to the absolute limit. Don't drop your heads. Um, but also the reflection and the feedback. From a sales perspective, though, how can we lose well? Hey, I lost, I lost the, uh, the battle, so to speak, but I, I'm not going to lose the war. So losing well, I think, is really interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I think, you know, if we're going to lose, okay, I lost the, I lost this tender. I can say, you know what, fuck you, you idiots. You shouldn't have taken that product. Uh, that competitor undercut us, of course, and, you know, they made a really bad mistake and they're idiots. Next. Or I can have a different approach to that is that how do I lose really well here? You know, and how can I set up, how can I set myself up for success next time with this client? Do you find that's a bit of a rare mindset? In the main, yes, but I think I think I think losing's got to hurt. It yes. has to hurt you, absolutely. You know, because sting. It, it should sting because um, it, it you need to you need to be put it this way: if, if you're not hurt or even offended that you know, everything <laughs> that you put you, you, you put forward <laughs> is is not being is not being accepted, or for some reason you haven't got the majority vote, well yes. then. Yeah, you, you, there needs to be some introspection and and understand why you're hurting, and what particularly you need to change for the next game. So, that, that, you so know, for that, me, that pain aspect, why you're hurting is a great question. Why am I really offended by this? We often don't tell our clients we're offended. What a great thing to say to a client. I'm still I'm deeply offended that you've chosen this competitor over me, but I still love you. You know, and I want to ultimately understand why, and I'd love the opportunity to work with you in the future. I dare, I dare say, no client's going to knock you back with feedback if you frame it in that way. I've done that. You know, I mean, particularly, um, particularly with a customer that you know you felt that um, everything was done, you know, accordingly. Um, you, you know, you've done what you thought, you know, and then out of the blue or out of the box, they go out and buy something that's. You know, or purchase something that's totally off the wall, um, and you, you know you need to you need to understand why, and 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 also they need to understand that you are disappointed, um, you are potentially hurt and or offended um, mm-hmm. by the fact that that relationship has hit hit a bump. Um, so as you say, you know you need to understand for when the opportunity arises next time, is that what is it that you need or we need to do to prevent you from doing the same thing again? Um, mm-hmm. There's something, there's something mm-hmm. we're missing. Yeah, we're yeah. missing yeah. something. 
But I think if you can get to the right person and have that conversation, it's incredibly powerful. You're sort of seeing as the losses are learning. You know, if you're asking, okay, we lost this one. I'm really deeply offended. I think you've actually made the wrong decision, to be honest, but I respect it. Doesn't mean I have to like it. But if I, I want to get the opportunity to work with you in the future. So how could I have won that process? You know what I mean? Like, again, why don't we ask these questions? Maybe fear, don't care, lack of care. Maybe uh, it's a bit of a transactional mentality with the way we're selling. It's next. Oh, that, that's, you know, win some, lose some, off to the next one. But um, it's really, it'd be really refreshing um, for a salesperson who lost, if I was the customer, to come back with me something, to frame it like that, I'd be almost compelled to try and help them next time. You know, if I see a salesperson that um, I knew was, was, was very committed to a particular sales process and product and company that they were in, in, you know, in, in, um, that they were dealing with and actively collaborating to potentially make a sale, and then that salesperson doesn't get that sale and then doesn't appear to care about it, that's what raises the alarm bells because they're mm-hmm. not hurting. If they're not, if they're not, yeah. if, if they're not hurting, it comes back to they're not passionate. Yep. If they're not passionate, they won't get a sale. So you know there needs to be you know passion. The, with passion, you can you can you can develop passion. You can actually develop passion in a person, but they need to they need to have I'll call it the two A's. They need to have aptitude and attitude. If they've got mm-hmm. the right aptitude and they've got the right attitude, you can develop passion okay but if they don't have the fundamentals sitting you know deep down well then for all intents and purposes you're wasting your time so you need to then move on to the person that you think has the correct mindset has the correct attitudes to develop a passion Um, and they might be new to your product and or your company so you do need to develop that passion or that sense of belief in the product that they're going to put forward because they, they may very well have come from a competitor. I've seen it where they've come from a competitor across to our product or our brand and in your heart, deep down, you know, they're not committed or believe in it because they've still got a sense of uh, passion or belief to their previous product, in which case they've totally and utterly made the wrong decision to come across to our brand and we've totally and utterly made the wrong decision to employ them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, yeah. you, need, you, you, need, you need to be able to identify, and this is all about passion, so you need to be able to identify those people in the organisation that have the potential to develop passion or go and seek someone outside of the organisation you think that can develop that passion and that belief in the product and the company and everything that, as, as I said, everything that revolves around that sum. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't... You, everything's inextricably linked. You can't, mm-hmm. in sales, unfortunately, you can't have one without the other. You just can't. You know, some people can wing it through and not be and not be particularly strong in a certain area. Um, but at the end of the day, and, you know, I know, I know your organisation, Trent, and I see your LinkedIn posts and I, I understand, you know, your passion. I understand your passion and I see the... I see. And I do. I see the, you know, I see the referrals. I see... The companies that you work with, and and that's and that's the key to it all. I mean, the key to it all is is being able to put all those ingredients in the pot, turn the stove on, and out of it pops out 
a very, very passionate salesperson. That's what mm-hmm. you want. I love it. That's a great way to end, Glenn, actually, because I could not agree. That's actually speaking the gospel. And I would just want to say thanks for your time today. I've really enjoyed chatting. Thank you very much, Trent. It's been fantastic to chat, and uh, I got something out of it, and I hope you did too.